This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to The Way Forward. I'm Jack Otter. I have not one but two special guests for this episode. Joe Duran is head of Goldman Sachs Personal Financial Management, and Larry Restieri is the president and CEO of ICO. Uh, gentlemen, before we start, let's get a few things out of the way. First of all, Larry, for those who may not know, can you explain what ICO, A-Y-C-O, is? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so first off, it's pronounced ACO. Um, but beyond that, <laughs> beyond that, a lot of people get that wrong. Um, but ACO is the premier financial planning and counseling firm for corporate uh, corporate employees across the United States. So we work primary our core business, which what we're really known for is providing financial planning and advice to corporate executives. But now we work with, you know, uh, you know, a big chunk of the Fortune 1000 in terms of working with all their employees, not just the, the C-suite, but every employee up and down the channel. Yeah, I think I may be guilty of um, recalling a song from the 80s or 90s, Ico, Ico, something like that. But, uh, <laughs> That's we, right. Ico, we, Ico. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, this is a question that one did not have to ask before March. Uh, where are you guys sitting right now as we speak? I am sitting in my home office in, in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is somewhat conveniently or inconveniently located in between my two offices in lower Manhattan, which is about an hour and a half away, or in Albany, which is about two and a half hours away. So I like to joke that I have the worst commute of anybody at Goldman Sachs. And I'm in Laguna Beach with air conditioning going right now. So <laughs> uh, Joe wins. Um, and Larry, somehow that that drive to Albany, it always seems twice as long as the clock actually says it. It's Route 87, or it's, but it's rough. Uh, well, I'm in Westchester, um, and I have three children in the house, uh, one of whom is seven, so you may hear from her before this is over. So the, the big news here, of course, uh, two years ago, I guess, Joe, at this point, almost two years ago, was Goldman buying your firm. Um, and I'm sure a lot of listeners wonder what that is like, what that was like. Uh, if we can set aside COVID for the moment, uh, what has gone more smoothly than you might have expected? And are there any bumps in that road that maybe you didn't foresee you've been uh, dealing with? Well, it's the second time I've gone through a, a big transaction like this. Uh, and it's fundamentally different in, in a couple of ways. One, this was a strategic direction that Goldman Sachs had a lot of interest, uh, finding a way to go into the high net worth market scale. And so there's been a lot of aligned interests and helping us figure out how to do that as well as we can. Um, and so it's been really great. The structure of Goldman Sachs, the partnership nature of the firm has really made me feel incredibly welcome, very different than the sale I had to General Electric a couple of decades ago. So that for me has been the most pleasant surprise, just the alignment of interests. Uh, I think I was very surprised also at the at the way the firm operates in regards to client centricity, I had grown up assuming Goldman Sachs was one thing, but it was an alternate reality the, to what it actually is, which is an incredibly client-centric, almost obsessive about doing the right thing for people. And the people are as smart as I had assumed, but they're nowhere near as arrogant as I thought they would be. <laughs> so that's been super positive for me. Uh, and so the people have been just fantastic all the way around. Uh, in every division that I've worked with. Obviously, the part that's been hardest is just we're part of a much bigger enterprise. 
Uh, and th that has impact in two ways. One, I, we have to be a lot more cautious about what we say and do because anything that Goldman does makes it to the front page and United Capital would be an afterthought at the back page. So that's different. And second, the regulatory environment, we're obviously a, a global bank uh, and a brokerage firm. And so that's very different than being a national RIA. And so I'd say that's probably the, the most difficult adjustment is just ensuring that we or up to the standards and the risk management tools that, that we need to have in place as part of Goldman Sachs. So that's been probably the, the thing we've had to adjust the most for. Pre-merger, you were not known as somebody who was particularly shy about uh, his opinions. Uh, so I'm sure that's been a challenge. Uh, Larry, uh, can, can you explain what it's meant for you at ACO? Um, that presumably your business has taken on a whole new dimension. Yeah, you know, when we, as Joe alluded to, before we even, you know, uh, got into uh, working with United Capital and acquiring United Capital, that's the segment that Joe and, and, and United Capital operate in was really something that we were looking to expand. So as, as I kind of said at the beginning, you know, where ACO had historically focused was really in the C-suite. So generally speaking, in the ultra high net worth space. And we saw a huge opportunity for us to expand into more the kind of the, the next level down within a corporate uh, hierarchy. So we, we felt we just needed some scale and we just needed a way to access um, all these potential clients, you know, through our existing relationships. And what United Capital really enabled us to do was just expand and, and better serve our corporate clients by providing you know more services just to, to more people. And it really has been just just a phenomenal partnership. And, and I think, you know, as Joe alluded to, I think one of the reasons we really were uh, intrigued by by acquiring United Capital was just I think we felt that 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 planning first mentality that United Capital had really aligned with where ACO, you know, has historically been. And the cultural fit was just, you know, really great right from the start. So it's just been it's really been a, a phenomenal marriage. Uh, so the, that planning point is interesting because, of course, Goldman has a lot of different business lines. Uh, United Capital was just doing one thing. Uh, have a lot of Goldman partners been attracted to that? And uh, have you signed up a few of them uh, with the, the entity formerly known as United Capital, now GS Personal Finance? Well, we've got, uh, you know, the, the Goldman partners, uh, I'm a client, obviously. The Goldman partners eat our cooking, so most of the partners are already clients of the firm are receiving really great planning from ACO. Uh, and so what we've done is we're expanding what we do to the next level of employee, the managing directors, which we're very excited about. So um, we're just doing that now. And we're quite, quite looking forward to what that will mean. We've had our first set that came through our first class of, uh, of employee clients. Uh, and they, we've gotten really great reviews from all of them. So we expect to expand that within the ranks. But the partners already had Larry's team taking care of them. Uh, that makes a lot of sense on many levels. Um, so, uh, Joe, I want to read you a quick quote you had in Barron's uh, a while back. You said, we are looking to completely change the industry. We started with that mission. We're going to do it on a much bigger stage now. Of course, even if it wasn't your mission, the industry is changing on its own. And then not long after you said that, uh, we hit, we were hit by COVID. But can you talk about how you've evolved your business and, and what that complete change you want to bring upon the industry is? Well, I think there's three big changes that we 
we see being accelerated actually by COVID that are inescapable. The first one is the idea that you have to provide comprehensive advice beyond investment and planning. And that means banking services, it means estate planning help, it means tax prep help, uh, bringing together all of the financial solutions because consumers today want their lives simplified and they want one person to quarterback it. They don't want you to solve everything, but they want you to coordinate it. That functionality, Goldman Sachs has the ability to solve and bring the expertise to solve a lot of those needs that we as an independent RIA simply couldn't. We tried to solve the banking issue for years and never found a solution. So that's one of the pillars that we see. The second one is the digitization of everything except for the final mile of the relationship. And so thinking about how you make advisors bionic, how do you use technology to wrap yourself around the client and be at their side 24-7 so that you can answer any challenge that they have. And then the third, probably the most important for advisors today is how do you grow organically? Uh, at United Capital, we had a, a very good history of acquisitions and integrations. We also had some organic success, but limited. And we see this everywhere. And by the way, once you get to 20, 30 billion, it's really hard to grow organically. And even acquisitions, you have to do a lot of them to keep making an impact. And so the question of how do you grow is at the heart of what every advisor should be thinking about. Because what's happening, of course, is acquisition pricing has gone completely out of sight. It is not a feasible strategy for an independent advisor to do a lot of acquisitions at 10, 12, 14 times EBITDA and make the math work. And so you have to find a way to grow organically. And the marriage with ACO and PWM has been really the accelerant that's been really helpful for us. But on the business front, again, the digitization of everything, and then along with a human as a point of contact, making them bionic, and then secondly, being more comprehensive in the services you offer, all of which Goldman has been super helpful in making that a reality. Yeah, I think you've probably just listed the three biggest trends in the industry, right? Holistic planning, technology, and um, and and growth. And those those multiples are certainly throwing a wrench into some plans. Uh, you know, if you, I, I did want to ask you if there are any big trends in the business that you see continuing. You've just nailed it. But are there any sort of conventional wisdom ideas about what the trends are that you think might be wrong that you're seeing things a little differently? Well, I think the idea that that advisors can keep doing what they've done and be successful and grow at, at scale is not reasonable. I think what you're finding is we're going to find uh, what has really changed is the growth and proliferation of national RIAs. And that's going to change the landscape even more than a firm like Goldman Sachs will because the independent RIAs are able to compete with a local office offering a lot more than an independent firm. And yet many independent firms have not adjusted for the fact that the big firms are doing things better and more efficiently and, and in a way that's planning-led in a way that was not true a decade ago. So I feel like very often the advisors that I speak to who are independent don't realize how much the industry has evolved beyond where they were. And therefore, are left on their back heels thinking that they have a competitive advantage when they in fact don't. Our pricing is probably lower. The services we offer are probably better. We can negotiate with outside managers at better rates. We can offer services an independent RIA cannot. And so you're going to see continued consolidation in the industry, most especially because very few firms are growing organically. 
because they're specializing in baby boomers who are spending all their money. There's very little focus on Gen Xs, which for us is a very exciting part of the market. Yes, it's, it sounds that way uh, post-merger. So one thing you didn't mention there in terms of all the things that you can offer because of scale that are tougher for an RIA is technology. But of course, that's on the list. Uh, do you have any advice for somebody who doesn't have a Goldman Sachs behind them in, in terms of how to get to the level of fin fintech that those younger clients especially are going to demand. I mean, that's table stakes for them, right? That to, to have everything on their phone and to have it work right the first time. Well, uh, you know, interestingly, I always look outside of our industry to see what is it like to be a consumer when you rent a movie or do anything else, you know, get a mortgage. And our industry is woefully behind, but the independent firms are even further behind. Mm -hmm. And so what I would suggest you do is secret shop anywhere. Uh, what you'll find is that three things are always true. One, you can change and adapt your decision-making on your mobile phone. Second, video-embedded results and communication is a part of almost every interaction that you need to have in order to be virtual. And third, you need to be able to respond 24-7. That's very hard for individual advice to do. Now, here's the number one thing. Don't try to solve it internally. There are lots of external solutions. And the good news is a lot of the fintech firms are going that way too. So, you know, as you know, we offer a white label version of our platform called FinLife. But firms like eMoney at Fidelity, MoneyGuide, they're all making their tools broader. Now, of course, the goal is to have you all commit to our systems and our technologies. And, uh, and that's obviously how... What you'll find, as long as you're with a large enough fintech stack, if your vendor is big enough, they're going to be investing in solving these problems because they have to in order to be viable. So a lot of this will get solved on behalf of the advisors, by the custodians, by their vendors, simply because we all have to in order to be competitive. Sure. Yeah, certainly the custodian role is going to be crucial there, especially for the smaller players. Uh, let, let's pivot briefly to COVID. Uh, everyone knows how much they and their business uh, and their peers have been affected regardless of their industry. Uh, what is the best advice you guys can offer to your peers in terms of lessons you've learned about remotely leading teams, remotely serving clients? Uh, as leaders, how have your priorities shifted? Maybe I'll talk, tackle that first. You know, what was interesting for us as a business, you got to remember with ACO, we actually provide taxes advice as well. So we were and you know historically have been a very almost paper manually intensive business even you know even no matter how much we try to bring in technology we still were just you know either you know file cabinets everywhere and just you know kind of an, an old line business in a lot of ways and if you had told me you know a year ago right now that we would be able to you know fully operate in a remote environment you know and not just you know, operate, but actually thrive in that environment, I would have said there was no way that could happen. And it did. And people adapted really quickly. We were, you know, we try to be very much in front of it. So one thing I think as, you know, uh, as, as someone who, who leads a, a, a large organization, I think as an employer, it was really important to stay in front of our employees, you know, just make sure they knew we were thinking of them first, that we were worried about their safety and we continue to do that. And that was really important. And I think, you know, people felt a lot of value in that. 
I think there was a real importance in content. So not just like not just our employees, but our, our clients wanted to hear from Goldman Sachs. So we were very out front with webinars, with uh, conference calls, bringing in experts. So just bringing in expertise because people wanted to hear everybody just, you know, didn't know, you know, nobody knew what was going on. Everybody wanted information. So providing that information was really powerful. And I said to our, uh, our advisors at the beginning of the crisis, I was like, you know, now is the time for you to really cement, you know, be as close to your clients as possible. Now is when they're going to need you. And we really leaned into that. And I think it's, it's paid div dividends over the course of, of, the, of this whole uh, crisis. And I'd, Larry, I'd just add, I think for us, we practice this, the thing we call the three C's. So whenever you have a crisis, you need clarity about what's happening. Uh, our firm did a really good job explaining what was going on, not just to our clients, but also to our employees. Second, you need communicate. You almost cannot over-communicate. So we had, with amongst the partners, multiple calls a week. Amongst our teams, multiple calls a week. And then with our employees, clients, multiple communication streams every week. Uh, and so communication. Then the third is care. And I'd say the one thing we've all at Goldman done is really reach out and connect with people on a personal level. Uh, and that is true beyond, again, just employee relations, but clients as well, to connect on a human level. This was a great opportunity because people's barriers came down and all of a sudden we're just humans in this completely unexpected world. And it's an amazing opportunity to build a connect connection with people in a completely different way. And so I think, I think those three C's were very helpful for all of us across the firm to, to really connect us all in a way that I think is much richer than what we had going into the, the crisis. So peering forward, what, what of those things do you think uh, will continue even after, if we can actually get this vaccine rolled out, even after we all get the shots and when we're feeling a little more comfortable? Uh, from the way you're talking, it sounds like you want to hold on to a lot of those things you've learned over the last, whatever it's been, nine months. You know, Larry and I have discussed this all the time. I mean, the humanization that's happened, the, the value of a human connection uh, I think that is something we have really dug into. Lara, I don't know if you want to add something to that, but it's the thing I've noticed the most is just how the barriers have really disappeared and people are much more connected on a human level. Yeah. And and just I would just add on that that, you know, I think one of the one of the big shifts, obviously, for all of us has been uh the introduction of Zoom or any kind of you know video conferencing, which you know, I will tell you that, you know, a year ago Goldman Sachs was not big on video conferencing. And now obviously we spend, you know, our entire day on Zoom. But what I think we found is that for a lot of our, our interactions with our clients, you know, Zoom actually that that conversation on the, you know, over a, a video conference works great. It can be a very intimate conversation over, you know, spanning miles. So I think for our advisors who used to spend a lot of time on the road, now I don't think they're going to spend that same time on the road. I think they can now be a little more productive, you know, staying at, at the home office or wherever they may be doing, you know, some of the meetings as, as, as Zoom calls. That's not to say it'll be all the meetings. That's not to say they're not going to be out on the road meeting clients. But that said, I think that shift is going to be, that's just a permanent shift now to how we and all of us operate our business. I would add, Jack, uh, one, one thing I think that is important here, when you think about what's happening, 
it, we're in the business of trust, ultimately. <clears throat> the clients are with us or not with us because they trust us. Maintaining trust over Zoom is relatively easy. So I think you can maintain a connection and actually make it just as rich, if not richer, with video and Zooming. However, the building of trust, taking a stranger, making them into a friend, requires a different set of tools because you don't get to sit there with a yellow pad having an hour-long lunch and then going and having a discussion. And so the digitization, our behavioral economics tools that we have to make the process virtual has been incredibly helpful. So, you know, I think I was a little bit taken aback at how just how successful we've been growing our new client onboarding and shortening the time frame it takes to bring them on using our tools in a digital way. But for many advisors, they don't know how to virtualize the yellow pad. <laughs> so you're thinking about how do I shorten the trust cycle when I'm not face-to-face -face with a client it requires a different set of tools. We've got obviously money, mind, and honest conversations, all these systems that we use to help us understand the clients because obviously if they're not understood, they won't follow your advice, but it's also to shorten the trust cycle. And that part, I think very few advisors, they don't see a lot of new clients uh, we have seen thousands of new clients, and as a consequence, we've really had to think about that particular nuance because it is different maintaining a relation versus building one. And so, can you explain some of the steps that you're doing there? Are you are you is it more FaceTime since you know it can be done with a click instead of a drive? No, it's actually having the clients participate in an interactive way. So we have I'll give you a simple. It's not a promotion for what we do, but an example of it. We, when we first get a connection with a client, whether it's a referral or a, a, a given to us from one of our existing clients or an ACO referral, they'll first get in contact with an ambassador who will find out about the person and send them a link to some things that they can do to let us learn more about them. That might be something like the money mind that tells us whether they use money to protect themselves or to enjoy life or to look after the people they care about. They, that they do by themselves or with their spouses and that information informs us about how they think about money. It also helps us to define what, what impo is important about money for them. By the time we have our first phone call, we already have enough information to actually help solve problems. And so what we found is instead of the old meeting where they'd come in with a shoebox of stuff <laughs> and have to spend the first half of the meeting just finding out about their lives, segmenting that out and say, we want your time with the advisor to be productive, so please give us this information in advance is a way to get to what matters because a lot of the soft stuff has to be done before the actual virtual meeting. And that has actually increased our productivity and made the experience for the clients a lot better. You know, and Jack, I'll, I'll add on to, to that, but actually is one of the things, the positives of uh, bringing United Capital on board and Joe and his team, you know, even from an ACO perspective, we had never used the ambassador program or anything really exactly like that. And as we saw it in practice, we're like, well, that actually really works. That's a good way to onboard clients. And we're now adopting kind of what was a, a United Capital method of doing business at broader at ACO. Because it's, it's just, it's a better way to kind of, as, as Joe alluded to, kind of shorten the time to create that trust and have a better first meeting with the advisor. I want to follow up on one word that Joe mentioned there, and that was spouses. 
one of the the wraps on sort of the old way of doing business for financial advisors has been that it was very male centric, right? Either you know you met only with the the husband, or the couple came in and the advisor only passed the papers, you know, to to, to one person. That would be the husband. Um, do you find now that it's not again because it's not face to face because it is just a screen? Uh, are advisors doing a better job of addressing both spouses? And I know that's very important uh, for re- client retention to develop a relationship with both of them. I'm not sure that uh, advisors are doing better. I can't speak to other firms. I can tell you that we've always been obsessed with bringing the non-financial spouse into the discussion. Uh, often that's a female. Very often it's male. It doesn't really matter. What we know is that in the industry, we typically ignore the woman even if she's the bread maker, much to our loss as an industry. We've always believed that both spouses, presuming that they're married, need to have a voice and that each of you are going to have a different perspective of why you work and what the money's intention is. Our industry, I think, spends too much time on goals and financial outcomes and not enough time on purpose and the intent behind money. And so we know when it gets to why do you work, everyone's going to have an opinion about that. And the intention and purpose of your money, that's probably not going to change a lot. And those are things like values, like I want to spend time with the people I care about. I want to make sure I'm never a burden to my family. Those aren't goals. Those are much more important. They're your intentions, your priorities. And that's where we spend our time. And when you talk about that, the non-financial spouse will absolutely be drawn in because those are things everybody cares about, even the kids. And so when you get to the specifics of how you're going to invest the money, a lot of people are going to lose interest. When you talk about what is the money for, everybody's going to have an opinion. And so how you approach the discussion really matters. That's a great point, and it is so much a part of the industry right now. Uh, Two follow-ups on that. One, in practical terms, when you're talking about the actual investment choices, are you seeing more focus on values? Is it ESG or something else? And then within the pandemic, have you seen people reassessing their values and have they changed about what they think is most important as a result of this experience? You know, I think we 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 definitely see the continued trend you know, towards ESG or interest in ESG. And people are definitely, you know, putting a greater emphasis on just we'll call it a social responsibility and how their money uh, is being invested. That's a, that's an overarching comment. That's not everybody, but we're definitely seeing it, you know, coming up more and and more. I think in terms of the the pandemic, and I think anytime you see you know a crisis, right? It, it just uh, you know investor behavior is 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 so fickle. You know, people who kind of went to cash in March and never got reinvested. <laughs> Or, you know, however you want to play it out. I'm sure not a single one of your clients did that. <laughs> uh, of course, of course, that's the case. Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, it's definitely, you know, helping clients manage through it, though. That is the role. That's the critical role of the advisor, you know, helping people not go, you know, fully to cash or, or you right. know, dipping their toe back in. And that's the real value that, you know, a human advisor can add in terms of having those dialogues uh, with clients. And I think, you know, I think what we've just seen is just, I think, a strengthening of the relationship, you know, when it, when it's a good relationship between the client and advisor through the whole pandemic. I would just add, you know, I think about this like the great reset. 
this was a time where we've all had more time by ourselves and with our families than we've probably ever had without the distractions. It led everyone to rethink are the things I'm doing that I was doing leading into this pandemic, do I want them all back? That's a really great conversation to have with your clients. It's an incredibly opportune time to say, what that you have had to give up, will you bring back? And you will find almost every client has had that conversation and thought about, I don't need to be in the car that often. I don't need to be do doing X, Y, and Z. I miss A, B, and C. And, and asking that question, what would you do more of and what will you do less of is the kind of conversation that puts you into the higher order, more important stuff that makes you more indispensable to these clients. Other than the commute uh, and that time <laughs> in the physical office, um, any trends you've spotted in terms of what those changes are that people are identifying? The ones that I think I have seen of heightened importance is this was already a trend, but as has happened with this pandemic, it has accelerated trends. The focus on experiences and time with the people you care about is clearly the thing that everyone appreciates the most that uh, a lot of the of the trying to help my kids do more and all the tutoring and everything else that kind of thing where you're spending a lot of time to keep up with the joneses is not as important as hey i really want to spend time with my kids i realize what i've given up by being at work so much and not having dinners with them now they're going to a lot of them want to escape for a little while but there's still <laughs> this reprioritization of this is what it's all really about for me. Uh, and that's what we've heard the most of is this idea that I want to actually get that vacation home or I want to make sure that we take the time to go on vacations together. So I think that's what I've seen the most frequent is this rethinking about how I allocate my time. You know, I, I wasn't planning on asking you guys about investments specifically and 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 feel free to dodge this one if, if you're not comfortable with it. But as you were talking, I was thinking that, of course, this has investment implications because we're hearing this from everyone, right? Uh, uh, I may not want to fly to conferences and, and meet client meetings and everything else uh, weekly, but I sure as heck would like to get away somewhere with my family. Uh, and that's going to have a big effect on the travel industry. Um, but speaking much, much more broadly about investing, uh, because those clients did not go to cash, what changes are you making in portfolios, not based on COVID, but just based on the the investment outlook? I mean, whether it's bond yields uh, practically at zero, climbing slightly, uh, whether it's expensive uh, valuations on equities, uh, can you give a sense of, of what your house view is in terms of investments? Well, I, th I think ISG, our, our investment group, really views the growth of the U.S. economy to be accelerating, uh, especially in the second half of the year. Our portfolios in general do not move around a lot. We try to control the things we can control, and that's taxes, making sure you're tax efficient, drive down costs as low as you can. And we don't do a lot of cute things. We certainly don't do anything exotic. What, what I think you'll find is U.S. corporations are very facile and adapt in taking advantage of changes that occur the S&P index automatically adjusts for, for companies that are taking doing well, an Amazon or an Apple, versus those that aren't doing so well. So I don't think you need to be that cute. We don't tend to, at least at PFM, do a lot to adjust the overall course because most of people will not fail because they underperform the market. They will fail because they make bad personal financial choices. 
They retire hmm. too young. They give away too much money. And so at ACO and at PFM, Larry and I talk about this all the time. Our job is to help our advisors, help our clients to make the best possible choices at any given time. And it's almost never anything to do with investing. Uh, yeah. I, one, one advisor once told me that her highest and best role by far was that of the shrink. Uh, she <laughs> she helped keep people from getting too excited uh, in the good times and too uh, downtrodden in the bad times. Yeah. Well, as we alluded to, keeping people invested, you know, through the first part of the year, you know, paid dividends down the road. So it's just, uh, you know, being smart, you know, and and being, you know, keeping keeping the course um, is so important. We can talk about scale and fintech all day, but that is the <laughs> core job uh, that, that you guys are doing, and it's, and it's a very important job. Uh, I have lots more questions, but the clock is telling me that uh, we should move to what is always the final element of a Barron's interview, and that is to ask each of you for an actionable idea or two that our listener can put right into practice. Uh, so who wants to start? I mean, I guess, I guess I'll start, you know, and I'll, and I'll tell you how, you know, we really you know, position ourselves at ACO and with our clients. And really that's about, we want to help our clients simplify their lives, right? Clients, especially now post COVID, as Joe was just alluding to, they don't want to spend a lot of time worrying about their investments or worrying about uh, their finances. They want your, you, the advisor to do that. So help your clients simplify their lives. And then, then that will pay dividends down the road. Mine would be to answer one question. What problem are you solving? Uh, Larry pointed out what ours is, which is to remove worry and anxiety from our clients' lives. But most advisors don't actually step back and say, what is the fundamental problem I'm looking to solve? And if you're clear about what that is, you're going to attract people who want that problem taken care of. It also makes it clear for the people that work for you what it is that you are on this planet to do. So if I could give one suggestion to any advisor, it would be that. What problem are you solving for your clients? Uh, I think that's fantastic advice because it also applies to so many other businesses. Uh, if, if people in journalism or um, car making asked, what problem are we trying to solve and, and put that front and center, um, I think we'd see a lot of success. Uh, guys, thank you so much. This was really interesting. Um, I know you've had a heck of an almost two-year run and, and have many more big years of growth in front of you. Uh, so thanks so much, and we, we hope to see you I know we're doing a lot of Zooming, but in person one of these days at a Barron event. Thank you, Jack. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to everyone who is listening. Tune in next week for our new podcast series, Actionable Insights, hosted by Steve Sandusky. And we'll be back with another episode of The Way Forward on January 25th. This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more.